Hello, everyone. Welcome back to Babylon 5 versus uh, Deep Space 9, the podcast. You can follow us on Twitter at B5VSDS9. We're available on all major and most minor podcatchers. Please like and subscribe on your podcatcher of choice. If you have a question about either show or anything else you'd like us to tackle, leave a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or any other podcatcher. Take a screenshot and email the screenshot and your question to us at b5bsds9 at gmail.com, and we will answer your question live on the show. We plan to start a Patreon with bonus content in the near future, so if you have any ideas of stuff you'd like to see for bonus episodes, please hit us up again at email at b5vsds9 at gmail.com. This is uh, Bob from Cascadia. I got uh, Matt from the Southland on the line, and you're listening to Babylon 5 versus Deep Space 9. Uh, today we're covering the uh, sixth episode of the first season of Babylon 5, Mind War, which came out on March 2nd, 1994. And we're covering the 17th episode of season one of Deep Space 9, The Forsaken, which came out on the 23rd of May, 1993. How are you doing today, Matt? Doing pretty good. On this, uh, We're recording on this Easter Sunday, so... <laughs> indeed, indeed. Uh, look out onto your lawn and see the great rabbit he is staring at yeah. you. All right. Do you want to kick us off uh, by talking us through the uh, A plot of uh, Mind War, uh, the uh, episode six of season one of Babylon 5? Sure. The, uh, the main plot we have going through this episode, we've got a, a pair of ruthless psychops named Kelsey and Bester. They arrive on the station and they're tracking uh, Psychor member Talia Winters, former mentor. And lover, the unfortunately named Jason Ironheart. Which, ugh, Jason Ironheart, really. You get it, don't you? I, I get it. It's just. <laughs> I mean, I mean it's, it's clever, right? That's some that's some Twilight level stuff right there. No, no, not even Twilight. I, I take that back. That's more like some uh, Fifty Shades of Grey level stuff right there. That's just bad. Yeah. Did you uh, did you like the performance of the actor playing uh, Ironheart? No. <laughs> That was somewhat interesting. I, I despite the name, <laughs> I, I didn't. I wasn't impressed. He, no. Fair enough. Fair enough. And then, so in the B plot, we've got uh, Sinclair's on again girlfriend, Catherine Sakai, surveying the planet Sigma nine five seven against the advice of uh, Naran Ambassador Jakar, who uh, warns her away in strong terms. And Sakai interprets this as that uh, Naran selfishness, uh, trying to hoard the resources of the planet. Uh, for the Narn regime. Uh, so, I, Matt, I guess we should start with the, the larger topic for Mind War. What do you uh, think of the Psychops? Yeah, the Psychops are, they're super interesting when they show up. Uh, of course, it's 
you know, one of them is Chekhov from Star Trek. So you're just like watching him and you're like, whoa, it's like they were coming in from a different universe. It's like strange. His acting has improved. I take that. Or at least his, his, uh, his method acting has improved. Did you notice that at all? Yeah. I, honestly, it's been a few years since I've, I've watched uh, the original series or the movies. So I, I couldn't say definitively. I, I wondered, do you think, do you think Walter Cohen was a better actor in the movies too? Or do you think he's just in like the Star Trek movies as Chekhov, as opposed to like the original series where he's supposed to be like the young Russian heartthrob? Or do you think it's just a matter of he gets more into the character of Bester in a way he never really did with the character of Chekhov? I think that, yeah, I think that he improved, uh, his acting ability improved, but at the same time, I think his, um, his accent improved as well. I just kept waiting for him to say something that I would like you to pick up on from the 60 show. And it just never like, it never, it never surfaced. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, uh, I, I, I'd have to double check this, but I, I don't believe Walter Cohen is Russian at all. And I, well, maybe I'm wrong. And yeah, his, his accent as the Russian character Chekhov was, uh, was never the best, shall we say. Um, yeah. yeah. Wait, 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 wait. Well, he wasn't Russian. I, I, not even by, uh, not even by ancestry. I don't think. Oh my gosh. Bob, seriously. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I'm just, uh, I'm just puncturing all your illusions, Matt. You really are, <laughs> man. Like I really thought, I thought the dude was Russian. Okay. <laughs> now I've, now I've learned something. Okay. Another, another star above my head. Have, is there anything else you can think of that you've seen, uh, Walter Cohen in? I know he kind of pops up, uh, pops up in various things. I think, I want to say he popped up in a like a really awful spinoff or not spinoff, but really awful satire of Baywatch, like back in the late nineties. Was he in the the one that tried to copy the X Files, like Baywatch Nights or something like that? Yeah, maybe that was it. Maybe that was it. And I think he like shows up with the with the cheesy Russian accent, you know, like we have ways of making you talk, sort of stuff. I mean, when he's at conventions and stuff, does he talk like he's Russian? I wouldn't know. I wouldn't know. <laughs> We've only been to one. So. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> and then, um, so I, I did want to flag, it's kind of unfortunate because we're not going to have her back for any return appearances, but I, I really did like uh, the performance of uh, Kelsey, his, uh, his partner. And they had a kind of interesting dynamic going where like uh, Walter Cohen is bester is doing this performance where it's like, he's trying to be ingratiating, but you get the sense that, he doesn't expect that his attempts to be ingratiating will succeed. And so there's kind of a, a really admirable sort of sliminess or a little admirable sort of hypocrisy to his ingratiation. And then in contrast to that sort of sort of good cop, you have uh, Kelsey being the kind of icier bad cop. I, I really thought that was a fun dynamic. Um, apparently, there is like a, a novel trilogy about Bester, and some of that is our prequels to the series. So it seems like Kelsey shows up in at least one of those prequel novels, but yeah, she's obviously off the board for future uh, Babylon five appearances. Yeah. I couldn't believe they killed her off when, when I saw that, I was like, wait, hold on. They, sh they he, he shoots her and she like disintegrates or whatever. I'm just going to call him Chekhov. They hit Chekhov. <laughs> he, he just, he just falls over. So I don't know if it was just the power of his blast or whatever was not as, uh, not as powerful or if Chekhov had some like psychic shield he was able to put up before. Yeah, I'm gonna, keep, I'm gonna keep calling him Bester because I—he—it's a reference to a science fiction writer I really like, uh, Alfred Bester. He wrote um, 
some novels uh, called like The Stars My Destination, which is a great novel. Don't let the stupid title fool you. He wrote another novel called The Demolished Man. I think he's actually the guy who wrote The Green Lantern Oath too, because he uh, he was writing the uh, 1940s Green Lantern in the late 40s, I believe. Yeah, Be- Bester's a, a really interesting SF writer. Yeah, I this is uh, this isn't really a spoiler, but to what I've seen so far, Bester never really comes back with a partner when he returns. I think the idea is a that it kind of shows that Bester's stock is rising in the psychor and among the psychops. And so he can sort of operate alone, operate with impunity. And I, I think they also kill Kelsey off to give him to give him some motivation, to give him a particular reason to hate um, Sinclair and Ivanova. So to get a better understanding of the Psychops power or whatever, they're at a, he's at a P12, correct? I think that's, that's what true. they say, yeah. Because I, I think they say all Psychops have to be P12. I think that's how that goes. And then Jason Ironheart was a P10. Yeah, before they started running the experiment. Right, before before everything. And then Talia Winter is a believe is a P five. I could be mistaken, but I think Lida Alexander, who we met in the TV movie, was a P five. You get the you get the feeling that might be kind of like the standard rating for commercial telepaths like Winters and Alexander. Right. So just to kind of give you an idea of where they lie on the scale, taking a quick turn back here. Uh it was not uh, Baywatch Nights. It was Son of the Beach. Son of the Beach. That's it. That's it. Two thousand one. Son of the Is Beach. Is that like an FX show? Yes, and he was General Dmitri Sukatov. <laughs> Delightful. Delightful. The name of the episode was From Russia with Johnson. <laughs> oh my. Oh my. Yeah. There you go. Um, yeah, and so we, we do get a, I think, a bit more sense of what telepathy actually looks like in like the Babylon 5 mythos here. Although it's still a little vague, like it's not totally clear to me, like on the size scale, like if you're a P6 um, above a P5, does that just mean you're slightly higher or is that, or is there some sort of like exponential factor involved in moving up the scale? It's, it, that's not super clear. And it's also, you wonder like actually how much difference there are between the levels, because if you just say like, Bester is a P12 and Winters is a P5. It, you know, that kind of makes it sound like on face value that Bester should like easily be able to like go through her defenses and, you know, get any information he wants. But when he, when Bester and Kelsey perform the scan of Winters, like, you know, they both have to do it and they have to like kind of work in concert and it takes a minute. So I'm, I'm not exactly sure how much difference we're really supposed to perceive i mean obviously there's some difference but you know it just sounds like p12 would be vastly more powerful than p5 and i'm not i'm not sure that that's actually the case to me it sounds like some dungeon and dragon stuff like if you do p12 like if talia winners goes up against uh you do p12 minus p5 so you've got uh seven a difference of seven so then they roll a die and then you add that to the total and if it's higher All right, so so basically, when they're uh, orbiting uh, her as she stands in the uh, in the middle of uh, Sinclair's office, they're all just uh, rolling dice in their mind and seeing what. Comes yes, up. It's, that's what the whole thing with the hands is. That's that's the invisible rolling of the die. Oh my! Oh my! Now, now you understand. <laughs> I, I've learned so much. It, it makes sense. It, come on now, like I, I'm sure I'm pretty sure there is a Babylon Five role playing game, <laughs> and I have no doubt those are 
probably the rules in the book. And I, I'm going to find it somewhere and pull it up and I'll prove it to you. I guarantee <laughs> you that's what they do. Yeah, yeah. Um, it, two other things to flag about it really quickly is uh, this will actually become a reoccurring trope of characters like orbiting a, a character that they're interrogating. Like I can think of at least one other time uh, in a kind of major moment in the series we see it. So it's a kind of funny trope. It's not like, I don't, know, I, don't, I don't think the orbit is supposed to be that significant, but it's just a technique the show comes back to you. And then the, the other thing that gets established that may be worth flagging is that there's a kind of rule of line of sight for telepathy. That's uh, what uh, Bester and Kelsey, I believe, say to Sinclair, that they need to be like in, in the line of sight to Ironheart to do anything, to send, it, to send the code to shut him down. So we start to get the kind of rules for telepathy here. Yeah, the line of sight thing was interesting to me because that means you know they have to be able to visibly see them. So I mean, if they're wearing a blindfold, can they not do it? Oh yeah, that's you would think. You would think maybe it doesn't literally mean like you have to see them. It just means you have to be in relative close proximity. But I don't. I don't know. Maybe maybe eyesight does play a role in it. I'm not. I'm not sure about that. Yeah, I feel like we need we need some more clarification on all this. I'm gonna totally find that book though because I bet it goes into like this deep detail. But I don't want any spoilers. So. I might try to just tread lightly on it. Well, you might look at when it came out too, because that might kind of dictate uh, how much spoilers it actually has. Like, I mean, if it came out like, you know, in 94, 95, it's probably not that bad. Okay. So we've kind of established like um, the, a little bit of what we now know about telepathy after mind war and about the psychops and the psychor in general. Um, I guess to pivot to the other major part of the episode, what because I, I know you've mentioned even though you've kind of enjoyed Jakar as a character you found him to be a, a little bit of a kind of stock scheming villain and here we maybe start to get a little bit deeper characterization for Jakar and the Narn I was just kind of curious what did you make of that yeah Jakar was actually been kind of sweet in this episode I was like oh that's so nice of Jakar to go and help uh help Catherine out with uh, whatever weird alien thing was around that planet i don't know i still have no clue what that was supposed to be i went back and uh you know rewatched the whole scene and do we ever get clarification on that or is that just like one of those magical things that just goes away um i think the actual name of it like on the project babylon wiki is the walker of sigma uh, 957 i don't know if that particular entity ever returns in the show but we'll get some clarity later on about like the general type of entity it is and that general type of entity will be important for the show oh, okay good yeah I, I just it seemed like it came out of nowhere and i was like okay yeah but jakar was actually uh he, he has a softer side to him helping out but i felt like there were other intentions involved like he was just trying to there was something else going on there that we're not made privy to at this point well it's sort of, it's sort of interesting because there's kind of like an edge to his his uh what he says to sakai right because he tells her that it would you know her death and upsetting uh commander sinclair would serve no good purpose on the one hand like the you know there's this sense of compassion and this sense of fellow feeling on the other hand you know the implication there is if it were a good enough purpose um jakar would be happy to uh, see <laughs> that bad things happen to sakai or maybe not happy but perfectly willing there's kind of a nice edge to it although i I actually don't think Jakar has any hidden agenda here. I think it his agenda is exactly what it, what he says it is. I don't think 
I think he and the Naran regime understand that the Sigma 957 Walker is just something beyond them and that it's best left alone. I don't, I, don't, I mean, maybe I'm wrong. And the, you know, this is the crux that the whole show resolves around, or revolves around. But I, my impression is that what he says to Sakai should be, and in that sense, taken at face value. Yeah, but you really don't know that till the end of the episode when you see that he actually does help her. I mean, up until that point, I'm thinking the whole time that Jakar is going to double cross her somehow or something weird is going to go down. But yeah, that was just my, yeah. that was my feelings as well watching it. Well, and there was a really good setup of him, like, sending the message to the Narn regime to send in a heavy fighter. But they, they do play, they play that scene, you know, as potentially more of a threat. Like, you're like, oh, you know, he's going to, he's going to send somebody to attack Sakai. And right. yeah, even when the ship shows up, you're not, um, you're not immediately reassured necessarily that they are in fact going to help uh, Sakai. Yeah, I, I did just want to flag this too as another kind of interesting example of the sort of Lovecraftianism of Babylon 5 in comparison to Star Trek, because, you know, again, there, there are like, quote, higher beings in Star Trek, you know, we, we've met Q, we've met the prophets, right? But at the same time, like, even though they're higher beings, they, they directly interact with the characters on Star Trek, and they're you know, their, their motives and their intentions, even if different than humans, are in a fundamental way, like, comprehensible in a way that just the Sigma 957 Walker is not presented as comprehensible or understandable, like, communication with it is not possible. And I, that that sort of, like, difference in, like, scale and communication, I think, between Babylon 5 and Star Trek is really interesting. Yeah, and even at the end of the episode when, uh, you know, Jason Ironheart becomes, like, I guess space Jesus or something. I don't know what he becomes. It's some like super telepath. Uh, you get that same feeling and sense of there's something like way bigger out there that we're not really supposed to comprehend. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, it, that definitely is like a common uh, SF trope of like the, you know, evolving into a being of pure energy or pure thought or whatever. And yeah, I, I, I'm pretty sure both the original series and Star Trek The Next Generation do that from time to time. But it there is there is something that feels a little bit different about how this episode handles Ironheart's evolution in a way I can't I can't pin it down as easily as I can with the the Walker, uh, but it, it does feel a bit different than how Star Trek would handle it. It very much reminds me of how they do things in comic books, like particularly specifically DC comic books. It reminds me of just that whole entity that huge kind of like how the specter appears in the comics and well oh interesting it, interesting yeah yeah and since this was written around the same time I'm, I'm i'm i think there's probably some connection there just as how it's presented yeah yeah and i mean the right the writer of babylon 5 is famously has written for both marvel and dc although frequently pretty unsuccessfully i would say but um, yeah, a little, little side note too <laughs> Yesterday I was uh, flipping through some things and I uh, I was on YouTube and there was this random episode of the real Ghostbusters. And I was like, huh, I wanna, like that. <laughs> I, I, yes, I wanted to watch the, I just watched the intro. Cause I'm like, I'm like, I want to see, I can't remember how this goes. So I watched the intro of it. And then it says, uh, Straczynski is the writer. And I was like, what? Like he wrote this. <laughs> like, so yeah, he, he's, he's, he's written a lot for a lot of different things. Maybe we'll uh, maybe we'll cover some of his uh, Marvel and DC writings in bonus content in the future. Although 
largely we will not have kind things to say, or at least I won't have kind things to say. I, w- I won't speak for you, Matt. Although I'll say, if, if, if you won't have kind things to say, you know, I won't. Cause I'm like, <laughs> it, it, it takes a lot to impress me with comic books. So I'm, I'm, Although that that said, uh, my my buddy Kale and several other comics critics assure me his run on Thor actually is very good. Um, okay. So he 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 had he's capable of writing uh, good comics. It just seems often it it hasn't panned out though. Um, well, you want to go ahead and uh, pivot to uh, the DS Nine episode, The Forsaken, and talk us through the A plot, Matt. Sure. The, the plot we have going into The Forsaken. There's a uh... We have a, a group of Federation ambassadors, uh, one of them being the famous Luxana Troy of uh, Betazoid, along with Taxo of Abrazon, Vidocia of Valeris the Ninth, and Lojal of Vulcan. Um, their main goal in this episode is just to make life miserable for both Odo and Dr. Bashir. A lot of comedy in this, uh, in this episode, a lot of uh, pretty funny moments. Yeah, yeah, I really enjoyed uh, Cisco's elation with both uh, Odo's discomfort with uh, Luxana Troy and Bashir's discomfort with the other three ambassadors. It, it was really endearing and really funny, I thought. This is the first time I really get to see um, Odo as a changeling and what he, you know, what he has to go through as far as having to return to his bucket or liquid form every uh, once every 20, 24 hours he has to do it. Uh, I think he says every 16 hours, although... Yes, you're right. Yeah, that also seems like a harder limit than it's sometimes presented as, because it's like, he's like starting to fall apart in hour 15. So it's like, you know, I'd always always thought about that. It's just like a sort of general thing, like, oh, you know, you you should sleep six to eight hours a night sort of command. But like this episode, like really kind of stresses that as a hard physical limit, and you get you get the sense that it's not healthy for him to you know really get even get into that fifteenth hour, much less beyond it. It's it's very specific to humans too. Did you notice that? Like it basically follows the human pattern. You I mean you just meant you just said it flat out. You know they need eight hours of sleep. Humans do. So so does Odo. Like you would think it would be a different, completely different scale. You know, maybe he could go two or three weeks without having to go to liquid, and he has to spend a whole week in liquid form. Or, mm-hmm. well, it raises two interesting questions. The first is if he did stay in the bucket for like three days, like would he then be able to, you know, keep a solid form for, for you know, a proportional longer amount of time? And it it also raises another question that now that I think about it, we don't really know. I don't think is like. When Odo goes into his liquid form in the bucket, is he like asleep in a similar sense to the way that humans are asleep, or is he just, you know, is he conscious but in the different form? I'm not, I'm not really sure about that. That's sort of an interesting question, though. Yeah, I feel like the writers missed a thing here. Like they could have totally done it where like Odo has to have like a week or two off to do just be a liquid form, and then like something happens on the station. And then they can't get Odo to do anything because he's in liquid form. <laughs> so <laughs> there, could, there could have been a whole episode around that, but they didn't. I just, yeah. Just thought, yeah. I, just thought I'd point that out there for any of the writers listening from, you know, the, the mid nineties. And, and I think that makes a good transition to talk about one thing I wanted to raise about this, uh, this episode that it, it, it is actually pretty good writing because you get these pretty assertive declarations from Odo about like his difference from humans like he's both like very defensive about like his approximation of humanness right like he 
he, you know, he's, I think he says something to the effect of like his mouth and his hair are real in the sense that they are him, but they are not real in the sense that they are like approximations of humanoid mouths and eyes. And so he gets, he gets like really defensive about this and he gets sort of really adamant about, you know, establishing his difference from Luxana. And it's kind of funny because Luxana is just always kind of game, game for it, right? Like, Odo will go off on this rant about how I'm not like you. Every 16 hours, I turn into a liquid. And Luxana just sort of jokes, I can swim. Or, um, you know, she has that great line about all the men I've known have needed to be shaped and molded and manipulated. And finally, I've met a man who knows how to do it himself. <laughs> yeah, she has some great lines to come back for Odo. Yeah, yeah. No, it's, it's a really sweet episode in that way. And I, I know Lexana's a sort of controversial character among Star Trek fans. Like, I, I think especially from her appearances, which she shows up on The Next Generation about every, about one episode a season to torment her daughter, Deanna, and Captain Picard. And I think people, especially from The Next Generation appearances, really don't like her as a character, or at least a lot of people don't. But I find her entirely delightful. Like, even in some of the worst uh, episodes of Next Gen with her, I just think, She's a really interesting and different uh, chemistry to add to the Star Trek cast. And it's, I just find her always delightful to watch on screen. Do you, you got any strong opinions on her pro or con? I enjoyed her in the episode. I thought she was hilarious and just a good character overall, just, uh, you know, playing, playing to Odo's uh, issues. There was one thing Odo said that cracked me up so bad. It was, uh, he was going to just try to like, I guess, turn to liquid and get himself out of the elevator but uh kira or dax mentions that you know the he'll get electrocuted or something like that <laughs> yeah yeah very then, convenient. Uh, yeah it's very convenient and then um luxana asks him you know what he's thinking about and he's thinking i wonder how bad like how much, how much voltage <laughs> that actually is <laughs> so he was totally willing just to like get out of there he was in such he was so uncomfortable yeah yeah well it's it's kind of interesting that it's like in some ways, Odo's uh, sort of discomfort, you know, it maybe reads as, oh, he personally doesn't like Luxana. But I think as the episode goes on, it becomes clear that it's not really about Luxana. It's more just that Odo, you know, really has these problems with like intimacy and, you know, is this very, very prideful, very private man. And so it's, it's not the fact that it's Luxana. It's literally kind of the fact that he's trapped in an elevator with someone in this kind of like intimate moment for him would be a problem with almost anyone. Yeah. I will, I will say that she comes on to him really strong though. I don't know. Most men would probably be somewhat uncomfortable with her at first. <laughs> <laughs> Speak for yourself, man. Speak for yourself. Oh, okay. You say so. <laughs> um, yeah, no, I mean, that's what, that's another one of the great character traits of Luxana is, you know, she's this, uh, uh, you know, totally thirsty older woman. And it's, a, it's you know, that, that can be kind of like insulting, like stock character and like a comedy. But, I, you know, I think, uh, I think Majel Barrett really uh, makes it uh, come off pretty well. And it's, a, it's, a, it's delightful to watch. Um, one other small detail I wanted to touch on before we got to um, the B plot was, so the other three ambassadors, we have uh, Luxana, who's a Betazoid, and then we have an Abrasian, a Bolian, and a Vulcan. And so Vulcans are pretty well established in Star Trek. And Bolians are never that important, but they, they show up pretty regu regularly. Uh, I think the 
famously the barber for the Enterprise D and Star Trek The Next Generation is a Bolian. And then um, we have the third species, the Abrasians. And I don't think we've ever seen them before. And I don't think we'll ever see them again. But they're just sort of, you know, another sort of stock member of the Federation. Yeah, I didn't recognize the, the species at all. Yeah, yeah, I didn't either. I had to make a point of uh, looking them up. Well, and then to maybe briefly talk about the B plot, which is sort of the, you know, the, the mechanism that causes Odo and Luxana to get stuck in the elevator together. Um, the crew of DS9 is downloading data from an alien gamma quadrant probe. Um, and uh, the data they download seems to make the previously um, recalcitrant Cardassian computer on DS9 much friendlier to O'Brien in particular. And O'Brien eventually realizes that they found a form of computer program life, and he uh, he names it Pup. Uh, did you have uh, thoughts on this uh, subplot? No? Yeah, I felt like this was like playing off the uh, the DigiPet thing craze of the mid '90s. Oh, interesting, was... interesting. This that, would have, <laughs> that craze would have been a little after this, though, right? No, it was about the same time. It would have been okay. mid '90s. Everybody was carrying those things around, remember? And that, yeah, yeah, I do, this, I do. O'Brien's carrying around his own little computer in his... In his... <laughs> yeah, it, it's kind of a shame that Pup never shows back up again. That could have been like a somewhat interesting thing. Although it's such an, it's such an abstract concept, right? Like he just, he creates it a, a you know, a sort of doghouse that we never see just in, you know, the subroutines of the main DS9 computer. And so that's so abstract that maybe it's kind of hard to like use for visual medium. It's not like O'Brien has one of those little, uh, you know, pocket size, uh, like blue electronic games that he's continually messing with. But he could have, he could have, there's another thing that they missed out on. They could have done that. They could have called him Puff <laughs> and, and you could buy and carry around with you. Your old, your old, star, your old starship computer walking around. One, one other thing that kind of comes up in the pup subplot is uh, we have a character named Anara, who is uh, O'Brien's Bajoran engineering mate. And it seems like they're setting her up to become like a reoccurring supporting character because she gets a fair amount of like lines and camera presence. Apparently, their original intention was for her to do something drastic in the season finale of DS9 season one, which we'll get to shortly. Uh, but they changed their plans and uh, never, never used her for that and never came back to the character again, which I, I thought was kind of a shame. Um, it would have been nice to have a different female Bajoran character. You know, you could, again, we were talking about this last episode, maybe you get a kind of more rounded sense of the Bajorans uh, rather than just having Major Kira and then Ensign Rowe from Star Trek The Next Generation, who are both delightful characters, but, you know, also are kind of fundamentally very similar characters. Yeah, I think it would have been great to have kept her on. Uh, I did mention, I think I texted you at this point, and I was asking about the uniform colors, because mm -hmm. I, I wasn't aware that all the Bajorans had different uniform colors other than Kira's red, the Bajoran security, they're brown, and then her outfit was gray. I was, are there any more that I'm missing? Um, I can't remember what I texted you, but there's gray, I think, is maybe, I we'd have to look it up. There's gray, and then there's like gray-green and they're slightly different things. One one is probably engineering, and one is probably sciences. But I I, yeah. I can't maybe maybe it's gray is engineering and gray green is sciences. But I can't I can't remember off the top of my head. They totally should have kept her on though. I agree with you on that. I, I I don't know why they maybe it was behind the scenes reasons. I don't know, but I think she would have been a good addition to the cast. Just having someone else, a different you know species other than human. Yeah, she doesn't have like any like 
great like notable lines but just in general like i i i thought she like delivered her lines well so you know it, it was it was a shame um well do you want to go ahead and pivot into some making some broader comparisons between uh the forsaken and between the mind war uh yeah starting with thirst watch at the very beginning of the episode we've got garibaldi practically sniffing talia winter's hair while she's talking about how you can only pick up on strong emotions and it was just the creepiest thing. Like, I think it was played for laughs, but it wasn't funny at all. <laughs> and it just came off. It came yeah, off so wrong. We, we really need to get uh, the uh, anti-horny doge meme to bop Garibaldi with the baseball bat. That's, uh, that's what's needed in that scene. It's, uh, it's a bit ridiculous. And then, obviously, on DS9, we've got Luxana is very thirsty. Very thirsty. Oh, Luxana's super thirsty. Yeah, yeah. And then we, we sort of have in the inversion of that, we have the Bolian ambassador being frankly pretty uh, pretty creepy and overbearing, talking about the how the uh, Arbizans are Arbizanians are uh, famously repressed. So that that was it. yeah, there's a lot of weird weird thirsty stuff going on this this week. Well, not 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 all thirst is bad. Like Luxana's yeah. thirst is good and wholesome. It's just uh, yeah, it was it was funny. Yeah, but. Yeah. It's just scary and the bullying, bullying ambassador kind of creepy. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. Well, then, uh, did you want to weigh in on Econ Watch, which is our, our new segment? Yeah, with Econ Watch, we're just going to be looking at the price of different things on Babylon 5 because they always mention it. It, it becomes a, almost like a, a, a trope in a sense. Uh, we find out that a room on Babylon 5, the one that Jason Ironheart decides to rent out, is $500 a week. Which, I mean, it's not crazy, but if you look at the room itself, it, was, it wasn't exactly in the best area. Uh, and I don't know if I'd want to pay 500 a week for that. Well, what do you think? She, I think she said it was the standard price, too. I, I could have misunderstood it, but I understood that to be, like, the standard price for, like, uh, guest quarters on Babylon 5. Oh. Okay, well, maybe, guest quarters are going for the nicest looking places. It, <laughs> I was just looking for the barrel with the fire in it somewhere. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Well, and paying uh, the the rents of the station will be a reoccurring subplot on the show going forward. Like it keeps coming up, not always with specific as specific of numerical values attached. Um, but yeah, although I, it's, it's I totally I, fluctuates with economy. <laughs> <laughs> what what other thing to flag is uh, I I think they actually say five hundred credits, not five hundred dollars. So you're right. Yeah. Yeah, I, I guess it. On, yeah. I guess it does flag. Yeah, it, are, are we still work? You know, did the dollar get generalized into a global currency, or are we working with some different currency? I'm not sure. That's a good point. We need to find out. I don't know if we can, but find out how much a credit was with the. I mean, uh, given JMS's, uh, given JMS's enthusiasm for world building, that might actually be something we could discover. Maybe what, what the rate of currency is, because honestly, rate of exchange is because. I mean, it could be 500 Bitcoin, Bobby, and that's a, Bob, that's a lot of, uh, that's, that's a whole lot of money. I mean, I, 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 I still, pre- I still predict that uh, pretty soon in the future where there are energy shortages and uh, the government dictates that we stop uh, pumping electricity and computational power into Bitcoin, that Bitcoin isn't going to be worth shit. But, you know, maybe <laughs> I'm, maybe I'm wrong. <laughs> maybe I'm wrong. <laughs> another, another point I would just make is that, uh, 
I would uh, I wouldn't be thrilled about paying five hundred bucks um, a week for a room in Seattle, but uh, I wouldn't uh, I wouldn't be put out over it either. I'll just say that. Yeah, I mean, two two thousand a month on a space station doesn't seem that bad. I mean, if it's American dollars. Also on Econ Watch, um, we have the we have the amusing fact that uh, Luxana uses a um, a latinum hair clip, which I, I had not remembered that, and it's sort of interesting. I think normally we think of latinum in the in Star Trek as just a currency, but I guess it also has you know like gold, it has decorative functions because earlier in Deep Space Nine season one. Uh, Quark tries to tempt Odo with a latinum plated bucket for him to sleep in. And then, yeah, we have uh, Luxana using it as jewelry. Um, it's also sort of interesting because it bo- both of these uh, episodes, I thought, did really good jobs with uh, foreshadowing. And so the fact that Luxana wears a wig is uh, foreshadowed pretty well in that scene where she talks about, you know, I, I always wear that, that uh, hair clip with this hair. And then likewise, there was some pretty good foreshadowing in uh, Mind War around like Jakar calling in Narn fighters, stuff like that. So I, I thought these were pretty tightly written episodes. I appreciated that. Deep State Watch, what do we think? Oh man, the Deep State is uh, really, really up to stuff on Babylon 5. Although we're not totally sure, right? Because it's it's said um, that Ironheart in his transformations is getting a lot more paranoid. I think it's mainly the Psychops, Kelsey and Bester who say that. But um, it, you know, it does. He does seem to be getting more paranoid. But in his account, um, the Psychor and the Psychops used to be a subservient part of the Earth Alliance government, but they've gotten more aggressive. They're now uh, using their te- their telepathic powers to blackmail economic and political power brokers on Earth. So we get this uh, we get this specter of like rising uh, Psychor influence in. Um, in the Earth Alliance government, uh, did you have did you have any thoughts on uh, on the deep state in this episode, Matt? They really when they when the psychors show up at the station, you can just tell there's more to it than what meets the eye. It's like there's there's definitely something going on there that you're just like, oh, whoa, there there's some or- organization that's out to get somebody or something. I mean, uh, and Bester is. He's my height at five six, but he's pretty scary looking compared even up against Sinclair and Garibaldi. He, he does not give uh, excuse my language. He doesn't give two shits about what they have to say. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Be- Bester is such a great character. It's it's yeah. delightful whenever he, he uh, so far he's he only shows up about once a season, but it's uh, maybe that intensifies as the as the show accelerates. But it, it's always delightful when he shows up. Yeah, he has a presence, and that's that's. It's not just him though; it's everything he represents, and yeah, uh, I think that's where yeah. it's in with the deep state. Well, what the thing he does at the end, uh, after uh, Sinclair and Garibaldi are trying to run him off the station, he does this weird salute where he does like what kind of looks like an OK sign, but he holds the he holds the O of the OK over his eye, and he says, "I'll be seeing you." Um, that that's both really sinister in its way, but it's also a really cool reference to uh, one of the greatest TV shows of all time, which is uh, the English uh, spy-fi show, The Prisoner, which uh, only aired for one season in 1967 and 1968. But it's sort of this like arch libertarian show, but it's really paranoid and it's it's really deeply invested in like secret government operations and there's a lot of really brutal interrogation scenes um 
not so much like physically brutal, but just like psychically brutal interrogation scenes in the prisoner. A lot of trying to like break people down and recondition them. And uh, specifically, and I believe that's the penultimate episode of The Prisoner. It's one of the most harrowing things I've ever seen on TV. And uh, one of the guys allegedly, one of the actors in the scene allegedly had a heart attack during it. But the uh, they're going to reference uh, other things from The Prisoner as, as the show goes on. This isn't the only Prisoner reference, but it's a really great show if people have never seen it. Also really influential on Twin Peaks uh, season three, especially the end. Yeah, you've asked me to watch it a couple of times. I just haven't had a chance yet to get around to it. Um, but yeah, I need to put that on my queue. Yeah, I think it's on Prime, um, or at least it was on Prime recently. It's also it's also a kind of weird show where it's there's a lot of different orders you could watch the episodes in, and they would tell you like you would get slightly different stories from how you would watch the episodes. Uh, that's unique. There are too many. Are there other shows like that? <laughs> well, uh... I think partially it's a result of you know that sort of uncertain production style of like 60s TV where it doesn't matter so much. Like in some ways, like The Prisoner is a very episodic show, but in other ways it is trying to tell like an ongoing story. And so where you place episodes does sort of affect where the, especially the main character, number six, it does affect like where, where you think number six's headspace would be at for a given episode. So I think that's mostly the significance of the variable orders. Any other comparisons you noticed as we were going through? Well, one thing I did, I did want to praise about both. I, I, I'd said both were pretty well, you uh, pretty well used foreshadowing. Another thing is they use both use parallelism pretty well. Like in Mind War, we sort of, we already talked about this a little, but we parallel uh, Ironheart's evolution into this being of energy and uh, Sakai's encounter with the walker around uh, planet Sigma 957. And that, you know, both are kind of higher beings. Both are, you know, both are these really uncertain situations. And I think the way uh, Mind War uh, cuts back and forth between those two stories is pretty effective. And then it's sort of interesting in the Forsaken, we have a strong parallel between like the dependency of the computer program Pup on O'Brien and then we have uh, Luxana's dependency on Odo for attention that parallels that. Although in an interesting way, these parallels sort of branch out because O'Brien and Dax, you know, at first are describing Pup as being like something romantically interested in O'Brien. Then they switch to describing it as a child. Then they switch again to describing it, you know, as a pet, as a dog. They specifically name it Pup. In contrast, though, we we see that Luxana is moving from like constantly contending for Odo's affection to being able to like comfort him and being able to point out that uh, even though they, you know, obviously have really vast physiological and psychological differences, there's sort of common ways that, you know, all subjects, all humanoids are putting up a front for the rest of the world. They're, you know, they're changing and modifying their appearance. They're dealing with shame. They're dealing with how much they want to stand out versus uh, be more insular. And so it's the sort of, even though both Pup and Luxana kind of come off early as like desperate for attention, like we see Luxana be a lot more thoughtful and a lot more self-conscious about her, her need for attention than Pup ever is. Yeah, I wish they would have kept Pup around. Yeah, apparently the memory alpha was saying that presumably Pup gets killed because I think they, I think they purged the computers before the 
Cardassians take back the station like in season five. And so presumably that killed Pup. Oh. I mean, also, if you want to put an optimistic spin on it, probably uh, probably uh, euthanasia via deletion is kinder to Pup than whatever Ducat would have done to him when he was running the station. You know, if Brian would have named it Pup, we wouldn't be talking about it right now. <laughs> nice, nice. Well, this is a, this was a really uh, good episode. It's kind of nice because we, we were coming off a particularly grim DS9 episode last week, and then we get uh, two of the best episodes of either series so far this week. So it was a... It was a nice uh, pick-me-up. Next week, we'll be looking at Episode 7 of Babylon 5, War Prayer, and DS9, Episode 19, Duet. Great, great. Yeah, War Prayer is a reference to a famous Mark Twain. I don't know if you'd call it a poem or an essay or a satire, but it's a it's a little short work of Mark Twain's. All right, so that'll, that'll be and, and Duet is when two people sing together. Yes, yes. I did not know that. Uh, so this has uh, been your educational hour of uh, Babylon 5, the DS9. Uh, this has been uh, Bob from Cascadia. I've had Matt from the Southland on the line, and we appreciate you all tuning in. And remember, you can follow us on Twitter at B5VSDS9. Uh, for show notes, subscribe to our Substack, B5VSDS9.substack.com. We're available on all major and most minor podcatchers. Please like and subscribe on your podcatcher of choice. If you have a question about either show or anything else you'd like us to tackle, leave a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or another podcast. Take a screenshot, email that screenshot to us with your question at b5vsds9 at gmail.com, and we will answer your question on the show. Uh, We plan to start a Patreon with bonus content in the near future, so if you have any ideas of stuff you'd like to see for bonus episodes, email us at b5vsds9 at gmail.com.